Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Professor Walter Russell Mead, a distinguished fellow at Hudson Institute, columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and professor at Bard College, join us to discuss charting the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Professor Mead will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Prof Professor Walter Russell Mead. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, I'm here to talk uh, briefly about my recent book, Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the Future of the Jewish People. I, um, at one point, I'd thought of uh, subtitling the book, um, uh, Don't Blame Israel on the Jews, but I decided with some help from my publisher, that was probably not a good idea. But still, the book tries to look at the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship in a context that is, that looks more at how non-Jews have thought in America, have thought about Israel and its place in American foreign policy, uh, and to some degree to, to take uh, what Adam Garfinkel once would have called a, a less Jew-centric approach to this history. Because I think um, there, there's a lot of mythology in, the, in our understanding of U.S.-Israel history. Uh, a lot of people think that the U.S. has been much more important for the rise of Israel than it has in fact been, uh, that it played a much more critical role in Israeli, uh, Israel's achieving independence than in fact it did. Um, and, and that's sometimes used by pro-Zionist writers and sometimes used by anti-Zionist writers to construct a kind of a theory of, of how a cabal of American Jews, because of their power in the press and their financial power in politics, are able to kind of ram this pro-Israel policy through the American system, and that that's the reason why Israel has emerged and is strong. And I, and I don't think that's right. Um, I think that if we actually look back at some of the history, Stalin, I think, had more to do with, the, with Israel's uh, successful drive for independence than Truman did. Um, I think that that in the years when Israel was weak and really could have used help from America, uh, it didn't have an American alliance, that Israel um, did not, as I say in the book, did not become strong because it had an American alliance. It achieved an American alliance when it had grown strong, uh, that actually the, um, the, the American policy toward Israel follows much more the logic of realpolitik than some realists who are often very critical of the relationship acknowledge. Um, and it looks to me as if uh, you need to, if we're going to understand why there is the kind of public support there has been for, for Israel in, in American life, we have to look a little bit beyond the places where people normally look. Uh, it's not just that, you know, less than 3% of the American population is Jewish. You know, only about 12% of the population uh, would con consider themselves white evangelicals. So you get 15, 16% of the population that falls into those two groups. But routinely on polls, you see 50% and more of Americans saying they support Israel or feel sympathetic to the cause of a Jewish state and so on and so forth. We clearly have to cast our nets a bit, bit wider. Um, 
the book ended up being a much longer and more complicated book than I expected it would be when I started. And that's because I found that the ideas that drive American thinking about Israel are critical to the ways Americans think about foreign policy and the world around them generally. So one needed to really kind of almost write an intellectual history of American foreign policy to show how Israel fits in that context. And also to make, to, to explain why American policy toward Israel has generally followed a kind of uh, realist political logic. We needed to look at how the uh, how American thinking about national strategy has developed um, really since the end of World War One. And so this book, I, I find myself in this book wrestling with American domestic politics, American policy toward Israel, and then the intellectual development of the American view of the world and how we've developed grand strategy ideas out of that. Um, I would say that, that some of the kind of big takeaways from me for the book are first that, that the Anglo-American Christian um, uh, spirit that played such a role in the history of the United States tended to be both less anti-Semitic and more pro-Zionist than other forms of Christianity, and that that has had a significant role in American domestic politics, and in the reality that the American Protestant establishment was Zionist or Restorationist, maybe one, one should say, before Herzl wrote Der Judenstadt. In 1891, President Harrison received a uh, a copy of a petition uh, asking him to use American influence to help establish a Jewish state in the lands of the Bible. This petition was signed by John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, the Chief Justice of the United States. This was not some kind of fringe thing. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Cyrus McCormick, a whole galaxy of prominent American intellectual, cultural, and political leaders. So where does that come from and how does it continue down into our our own times that that was one of the sort of threads i tried to follow in this book i don't make recommendations uh for the future of american policy i don't uh, i don't produce the walter russell mead patented peace plan for the middle east here i've tried things like that in the past as as many have but I found that trying to take this away from advocacy uh, actually made it much easier to provide a sort of overview of the background that guides both the policy and the political debates that we're still having. Um, the book also found me uh, looking hard at the ways that anti-Semitism has played a role in American politics. Because when we say that the United States has had less experience of the kind of violent, bitter anti-Semitism that um, we've seen in Europe and in other parts of the world, that of course does not mean the United States has, has had none. It's almost as if we had the equivalent of a COVID vaccine that didn't keep, doesn't keep you from falling sick, but maybe keeps you from getting so sick that you get hospitalized. And one of the things you see as you look at the history of anti-Semitism in the United States is that 
in periods where people are fundamentally uncertain about the American project, you know, will it work for me? Will I be able to live the American dream? Does America, is, is America really a place where people of all kinds can, can be fulfilled and find justice? Uh, in periods where a lot of people are, are asking those questions, you often find anti-Semitism popping up and very often on the far right as well as on the far left. And the situation we see today in which you can find people who are sort of aligned with, um, you know, Ma ultra MAGA or whatever you want to call it, sort of Charlottesville, tiki torches, you shall not replace us, this kind of stuff. You find anti-Semitism very prominent there. And in the same way among people who would say, well, the American experiment is really just an exercise in white supremacy um, in, and American liberalism is just the friendly face of racism or these kinds of, of beliefs, you'll often find there too some of the sort of crudest kinds of anti-Semitic caricatures. And that is one of, for me again, one of the core takeaways here. There's something about the idea of America as a tribe of tribes where many different kinds of people, many different religions, people of no religion, uh, Christians, Muslims, Jews, and others can sort of shelter under this big tent of an American identity and sense of American purpose. That is, that is a critical element, both of the way, well, the way our country works and is able to work, and uh, it's, it's a seedbed for a lot of the pro-Zionist um, thinking that goes on in the United States. I don't make predictions either in the book, uh, really. I don't say, okay, American foreign policy is going to, you know, we're going to rally around Israel uh, forever, and I don't say we're going to, we're going to turn against it. Um, that requires a better crystal ball than, than I've been gifted with. But what I do try to, what I, what I do look at is, it seems to me our current debates about whether the United States will remain engaged in the Middle East, and if so, for what purpose, um, uh, should we pivot to Asia? Should we you know, give up the world as a bad business and get back to Fortress America and just look after our own interests very, very narrowly defined? Um, our policies to Israel will ultimately depend on how these larger questions are resolved. Myself, I would think that if we continue to believe that the Middle East is a, an essential part of the world for American foreign policy, and that we need to be engaged, that we need to prevent any other country from dominating the oil resources of a region that re will remain important for many years to come, then we're likely to see Israel as a kind of natural partner and ally because Israel's own vital interests uh, depend on the idea that no other country becomes a dominant player in the Middle East like Iran would like to be, and maybe in the future, Turkey. So there's a kind of a, you know, our, our interests are sort of joined at the hip, and that's especially true now that um, Arab countries, many Arab countries see Israel as a kind of a strategic ally whether it's against Iran or against other uh, potential hegemons.
So, uh, you know, that looks to me like the sort of natural path that, that American foreign policy may go down. But we should not ignore that we have a lot of a lot of voices in the country who who really don't think we should try to maintain this kind of global foreign policy that we followed after after World War II. If I have one other thing to say in the um, uh, few minutes before we get into to Q and A, it would be that um, uh, we are we are in an apocalyptic era of world history. That doesn't mean that I think the apocalypse is coming tomorrow. I'm not wearing a hair shirt with a sign saying the end is near. But when President Biden was sa said uh, not long ago that we're at an Armageddon-like time, I for one was reminded of being 10 years old at the time of the Cuba Missile Crisis, when the kids in um, my elementary school, we used to debate on the playground whether our town was, would be hit first by Soviet missiles, or we would be left for the second or third strikes. Um, but whether you think about climate change, whether you think about the possibility of nuclear war, whether you think about um, the singularity, as people in Silicon Valley talk about AI taking over the planet or whatever, many of us who think about politics and the future of the world today find that questions of ultimate concern are becoming fused with foreign policy debates. And that makes foreign policy debates hotter, makes them harder to solve, and makes them more prominent in the minds of people. Because of the place of Israel and the Jewish people in the mind not only of Christians but of Muslims, Israel is a kind of a, you know, has a talismanic quality to it. And at times when, when one feels that the world is in this apocalyptic era, the attention not only of Americans, but of people around the world gets drawn to Israel, to the conflict with the Palestinians. It looks to me as if that's not going away. And that for better or worse, both the Israelis and the Palestinians are gonna be doomed to continue their struggle in the glare of this extraordinary global spotlight. So, do we have questions? I see I have a couple here. Uh, yes, hi. Thank hi. you so much. Do you so want much. to call the questions or should I do that? I'll, I'll ask them. Okay, great. All right, as a reminder to our viewers, please, if you have a question, please type it in the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. Uh, first one from William Wolf. Do you believe Israel could survive without the support of evangelical Christians? Absolutely. Israel can survive without the United States of America. If the entire United States vanished beneath the sea tomorrow, Israel would still have nuclear weapons. It would still have technology that would make countries like China, India, and Russia stand in line to want to be its friends. And it would still be a necessary power for countries like Saudi Arabia that want to protect themselves from Iran. Israel had no help from evangelical Christians and very little from American Jews in the 1940s and 50s when it was a very weak country. This idea that Israel depends on the, on, on the prayers and the strength and the activity of certain groups in the United States is one of the big myths about this relationship and about world politics. Thank you for that. Larry Greenberg. 
has read your book and said that it was a great book uh, and a lesson on how one should think about a nation's foreign policy, but asked, I loved your Vulcan motif to explain much of anti-Semitism, but that did not explain FDR's tactic complicity in the Holocaust. Uh, also, the assessment of America's even-handedness policy about the uh, Palestinians does not outweigh their rejectionism uh, properly. Can you care to comment on that? Well, I think let's, um, you know, the, the question of FDR and the Holocaust is a, is a pretty complex one. Uh, he clearly did not do very much to stop the Holocaust. Um, arguably, there was not a whole lot he could have done in the sense that he clearly wanted the United States to take a stronger anti-Germany policy in 19, you know, from about 1938 on, but he just didn't have the political support. Um, Congress just would not have backed him up. And I, I don't think he would have won in 1940 if he had ran on a platform of let's, let's stop Hitler before he kills the Jews. So his, you know, the choice, it's always difficult when you're analyzing a historical figure to, to understand not only what their church choices were, but what did they think their choices were and why did they make the decisions? It is interesting, and I think one, one on the Palestinians, it is very interesting how much support the Palestinians have had from the United States, really going back to the establishment of UNRWA, where the United States really took the lead in paying for um, the development of, you know, and the assistance of displaced Palestinians after the War of Independence. In fact, in terms of official government support, both financial and diplomatic, the Palestinians have actually had more assistance from the United States government than the Jews of Palestine did before 1948. So um, I'm interested that we don't see books about the Palestine lobby or conspiracy theories about how the Palestinians are taking over the country. But it is true. Now, why? I think some of those are really the same. You know, some of it is involved with the idea that that for many Americans, the Jewish state won't be safe until there is a Palestinian state that accepts it. And so we should not many people in America, including many American Jews, who are very strongly in favor of establishing a Palestinian state and supporting the Palestinians diplomatically, have in their minds that this is the best path to support Israel, that that'll make Israel safe and secure. So, you know, to try to parse this into the pro-Israel versus pro-Palestine thing, I think gets us into complications. But it is definitely true that uh, American policy has come has done more and tried harder to get the Palestinians estate than it did to get the pre 1948 Jews estate. Thank you so much. Uh, Bernard Haeckel asked, uh, thank you for your talk and your thoughtful analysis over the years. Do you think the left word move in the Dem Democratic Party will persist? The deep desire to strike a deal with Iran appears to be signaling a diminishing interest in the security of Israel and countries like Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states. You know, this is all, it's all tricky. And what Yogi Berra said, prediction is always dangerous and especially when it involves the future. So I'm going to, I'm going to be careful here. I don't know about the future leftward tilt of the democratic party. Um, you know, certainly when, uh, you know, the Democratic Party was tilting very hard to the left in the late 1960s and early 1970s. 
And then came the McGovern election. And again, when Reagan defeated Mondale in 84, there were, you know, there were, the Democrats moved back toward the center. So these things, I don't think there's some kind of, you know, inevitable force of nature that's pushing parties in different directions. I think they respond to events. So we're going to have to, I think it's going to depend on events. Absolutely. Carrie Hillebrand does follow up with, uh, along with on the right side with Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera. Uh, and do you see this as a troubling trend? Absolutely. Currently? And as I say, this is, you find this trend both on the left and on the far left and the far right. And, you know, that it's clearly a bad thing. It's clearly a dangerous thing. Um, and I think what it, what it means again to me is that um, it's, it's in that center, the vital center of American politics that we need to look for new ideas, new ways of organizing our politics, some creative thought about where we can go, ability to solve problems. Ultimately, I guess I'm still a believer in the American system. I still believe that a mix of free enterprise and a forward-looking government can in fact solve many life problems for uh, let's say can't solve all the problems of all the people but it can solve enough of the problems of enough of the people and create enough wealth that society can continue to go forward and so my hope is that and prayer is that america will remain america even in the stormy times that we're passing through right now Absolutely. That's a that's hope we can all hope for. Uh, so what do you think of the Trump administration expanding beyond just the Israel-Palestinian issue and, and moving to the, the Israel and the Middle East with the Abraham Accords? Well, I may have a slightly controversial view here for some, but I think that, I think just as the, the peace agreement between Egypt and Israel did not come about because of Jimmy Carter, but actually in some ways came about because they both wanted to block Jimmy Carter from doing something else. In some ways, if the Abraham Accords don't actually represent as much a triumph of American diplomacy as the grim realization in both Israel and the Gulf Arab states that America is no longer as reliable as it used to be as a defender in the Middle East. We're not as committed. Maybe we're not as able. Our politics we elected Bush, then we elected Obama, then we elected Trump, then we elected Biden. Who knows what we'll do next? And so when you start thinking about how to how to small or, or, or smallly populated wealthy states in the Middle East remain secure without the American protection, it makes a lot of sense for them to start to band together. And also when you think of the Arab oil states having to look maybe, who knows, to the end of the oil economy as the energy transition moves ahead. Um, how are they going to develop their economies? Well, Israeli tech and experience is, is actually quite interesting there. So I think what we're seeing, I, I see the Abraham Accords as an adjustment to what some might start to call soon a post-American era in the Middle East. It also means that, and, and I think we see it on things like the JCPOA, 
we're seeing a kind of alignment of Arab and Israeli diplomacy, and not just in the United States, but in Britain and France, uh, where I think the diplomats of these different countries are starting to feel, well, maybe we can get more done if we work together. So I, I give the Trump administration credit for pushing the agreements along and trying to help remove obstacles. But I think the main force going on here, as has always been the case for the most important breakthroughs for peace in the Middle East, comes actually from the local people themselves. Very interesting. Uh, Stephen Keeler asks, uh, if Israel or the entire Middle East were to put the shoe on the other foot, fall off the face of the earth, what would that mean for the U.S.? Other than energy, what is the vital rationale for the U.S. to be so concerned with the Middle East, especially in light of the possibility of the U.S. becoming energy independent? Yeah, we have never. I mean, it's a good question. Uh, and in some ways, if the Middle East would disappear, that would solve an American problem because our problem is not necessarily that we want the Middle East for ourselves, but we don't want China to have it or we don't want Russia to have it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if it vanished, well, that problem would be solved. Uh, but and the energy problems would be difficult. But as you know, we have a lot of energy. The price would go up because prices tend to be global, et cetera. But on the assumption that's going to stick around, why should we care? Why do we care? Uh, one of the one of the clear reasons to me is that, um, you know, a country like China, um, when they when the Chinese think about, hmm, maybe we should attack Taiwan. Hmm, hmm, is that a good idea or a bad idea? One of the things that they look at, and I know because Chinese officials have talked to me about this in the past, back when you used to be able to have candid conversations with your Chinese counterparts, uh, that um, they look at the example of Germany, which goes to war with Britain in, in World War I and World War II, and then has all of its trade cut off and is cut off from global oil supplies and global rubber and food and all of these things. And the lack of these raw materials helps drive German strategies in disastrous ways. Um, so, you know, having the ability, if we need to, to interdict the oil from the Middle East to China is very important, but also preventing China from having the kind of power in the Middle East that it could say to them, we want you to stop selling to India and Japan, or we want you to stop selling to Europe. We do not, I think it's a, I, I believe it is a, a, one of our highest national interests to keep that from happening. Now, I don't think this means we need to like invade the Middle East and democratize every country we can see and so on and so forth. I think we can do this in a, in a balance of power kind of way. Uh, because as I say, there are a lot of countries in the Middle East that want this too. Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar even, uh, UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait, they don't want the Middle East to be dominated by great external powers. So our interests, I think, are aligned with enough of the people there that we can come up with foreign policy approaches that don't engage us in everlasting wars every five or 10 years. Actually, we can, we can get the, what we need to get done now. I think we can get done with less military investment, but maybe stronger alliance politics and better support of the people there who really do want to do this themselves. 
Excellent answer. Uh, Damien P. asks, there is some question about whether Israel will provide weapons or other support to Ukraine. I've seen conflicting reports. Could this drive a wedge between Israel and the U.S.? Could there be an opening for Putin? Well, I think um, our dear Iranian friends are simplifying this problem because by selling weapons to Russia and apparently from what we're now hearing, actually having combat forces on the ground in Crimea assisting the Russians, basically, again, according to these reports, to bomb civilians in in Ukraine, um, the Iranians have succeeded and the Russians have succeeded in alienating themselves from Israel. Now, my guess is, as many of the many of our listeners, I'm sure know, there are a lot of Russian immigrants in in Israel, and they are a very important voting block, and many of them are swing voters. There's a very tight election coming up in in Israel. My guess is we're not going to hear either part, the leaders of e any party running around deliberately trying to alienate the Russian vote. Some of that Russian vote is very anti-Putin, but some of it is like, well, I don't like Putin, but I think the West is too hard on Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to see the Israelis bob and weave. But after the election, then I think the logic of the deepening relationship between Iran and Russia is going to be the main force sort of driving Israeli policy after that. Absolutely. Thank you. And before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? I posted the link to your book in our chat for anyone who wishes to purchase well, that. Well, great. Follow that link up. Amazon and others are standing by. Uh, operators are taking your calls. We've had it sell out at Amazon a couple of times. It'd be great if you guys could go out there and make that happen again. Uh, you know, I, I write a weekly column in the Wall Street Journal. And that's where you can kind of hear me on uh, on foreign affairs. So uh, if you're not already a subscriber, that might be worth doing. And also, if you are a subscriber, look, it comes out online on Monday night uh, and then uh, on Tuesday in the paper. And when we're having a really bad week, I write two columns. When when the world is really burning down fast, I have two columns. And the, the second one usually appears on Thursday. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the Kozara webinar. Thank you, Walter, for joining us today. Thank you. Of course. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks again.